0: In terms of faith, I feel like my faith is a little bit of an amalgam now, that it's synthesized into a person that understands that faith is something that's deeply personal. Faith is a driver more than it is a goal. By allowing my faith to to drive me, I've made decisions that are ambitious and loving decisions that have had significant consequence on the South Side of Chicago. Like faith faith should be something that evidences my belief and and the South Side is the evidence of my belief. Hi, I'm Dan
1: Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. On today's episode, we're going to meet an American artist who not only creates beautiful things, but creates something far more valuable, beautiful communities and connections between the past, present, and future, Theaster Gates. Through his installations, structures, ceramics, archives, and even music, Theaster Gates highlights, translates, and brings to life moments in the Black American experience. In other words, polymath is a great way to describe him. And considering the guy is barely 50 years old, he can make any creative person feel downright lazy. He began his career in ceramics using the craft to explore cultural connections. A pivotal work of his, in my mind, called Cosmology of Yard for the Whitney Biennial in New York in 2010, is a great example of understanding his work. The installation piece has various elements like a throne, a shoe shine station, and a video of a black minister singing and all the works were created using wooden boards salvaged from the Wrigley's Chewing Gum factory on the west side of Chicago, a famously challenged part of the city and the heart of the black community there. Reusing these overlooked elements of black life are a major part of how he creates his art. He's also made works using the archives of famed magazines like Ebony and Jet, sometimes using the pictures within and sometimes using the leather bound archives themselves. And last year, his work took on an architectural event with Black Chapel, a freestanding structure for the Serpentine Pavilion in London. There, he created, working with architect David Adjaye, a large, literally black building to be used as a musical performance space, with a shape referencing traditional African architecture and the bottle kilns of industrial-era British potteries. The work of Theaster Gates has been collected in museums such as the Tate, the Smithsonian, Whitney, and many others. And this fall, he's been given the Osamu Noguchi Award, given by the Naguchi Museum in New York. More on that later. But all of these accolades and evocative works are only half of the story. He's also put his thoughts into action in his hometown of Chicago, where he's converted a neoclassical bank building into an art center. He's created a foundation that supports the arts locally and is involved with projects that transform disused spaces into forces for community enrichment. And he also hosts dance parties and teaches at the University of Chicago. My only question is, does he sleep? I caught up with the Astrogates from his office in Chicago to talk about his youth on the city's south side, how his adventurous career began and continues with ceramics, his thoughts on preserving the black image, his faith, and his ongoing connection with traditional Japanese culture. You know, doing my research uh, and doing my homework for for your work um, was really a challenge because you had such an incredible career. And even for someone who I would consider to be a young a young guy, um, you are so unbelievably prolific, and it's so unbelievably impressive. Um, so, but I want to start at the beginning. And you were born and raised in Chicago, and where a lot of your work is based, of course, and. You have spoken a lot about your father in your in your career, but I also read that you were the youngest of nine is that right
0: it it's totally true dan that um uh I have eight older sisters and uh and it it feels like you know being raised on the west side of chicago was was kind of a joy because you know it was a wild it was a wild environment it was you know the late eighties early nineties. But my house, you know, I always said my house was like a house of love and generosity and, you know, you know, lots of friends and, and boyfriends. And so I just felt like I was surrounded by like this huge community that was called my family. you know.
1: <laughs> and I guess, uh, you know, you talk a lot about your father, but your your mother must have been quite influential in your life. You know, what was she like?
0: Yeah, I think I talk about my my father because my mom told me to um <laughs> that she was she was really the saint and he was the laborer. You know, I think that that's how it falls out and and my my mom kind of established you know, she established the order of the house and kind of kept the discipline, but she also kind of demonstrated I think, you know, for what would have been for her strong spiritual values and, you know, ways Ways of being kind to people and also ways of like not taking any crap from people, you know, like like knowing how to hold your line with nine kids I you think better. My, <laughs> yeah, my character is probably a good combination of the two of them.
1: And so what were you like as as sort of uh, a young boy? Like what sort of fascinated you? Like what did you spend your time doing?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, as a as a young guy, my, 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 my favorite pastime was, was roller skating. You know, it was like between roller skating on Saturday afternoons and gospel choir on Sunday. Uh, you know, I, I tried to stay out of trouble and there was trouble all around me, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, skating was one of the things that I did to like really, uh, you know, be in a safe place a lot of time. But, you know, I was pretty good at math and reading, so I also just loved reading all the time. And, and, you know, my dad and I, we would go down to Maxwell Street, you know, where we could buy secondhand things. And whenever he was working on his on his buildings, you know, we could go pick up a tub or go pick up light fixtures, you know, and, and there was this market, this open air market. And so I would spend my Saturdays, you know, you know, after skating or before skating, we'd go and he'd give me a haircut. We go to Maxwell Street. I'd come home and go skating, and it it was a real kind of idyllic, you know, an idyllic child childhood. You know, really sweet.
1: And uh, you know, what? Were there anything you do? You still skate, by the way? Oh, I I skate
0: as often as I can get to the rink. Oh, okay, Absolutely. Um,
1: reminds me of uh, roller rink uh, birthday parties um, back in the day. <laughs> um, and and so I'm fascinated by your 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 studies in college that kind of combined. From what I've read, urban planning and ceramics, and how how did you when you went to school? Like, how did that happen that you decided these two completely, in many people's minds, maybe not in yours, but like these sort of different, completely different topics? Or how did that how did these two come together?
0: Sure, I mean it, it's a pretty straightforward story. I started out at Iowa State uh, University as a pre pharmacy major, thinking I would. I would follow my sister Larissa, who was a pharmacy major, and uh, realized pretty quickly that the sciences wasn't my jam. And in the in the design department, there was a there was a field called community and regional planning, and it felt like when I when I read the descriptions of the classes, you could you could stu- study building law and land use law and building codes and and. And you know landscape, and it was it was adjacent to the architecture department in the design college, so I, I, I changed my major to urban planning, community and regional planning, and in order to graduate in the school of design, you also had to take art classes, and so I found myself you know down in the pottery studio, and it seemed like the most kind of compelling place, and it was the the shop was run by a, a dear friend of mine now Ingrid Lilligren. And it was Ingrid's ceramics classes that made me want a minor in ceramics and then continue to make, you know, over the years.
1: And so when you graduated, like how in that sort of early career, how did you decide, OK, this is something I want to st- move into? What was the early career like for you?
0: So a few key things happened. I, I graduated from Iowa State and that year I also received a, a scholarship from the Rotary Foundation to study at the University of Cape Town. But there was a gap year between um, applying for the University of Cape Town and the award starting. So I moved to Seattle, Washington, and my first real job was at a place called Union Gospel Mission on the south end of Seattle. And they allowed me to build a pottery studio that would act like an extension of their youth ministry work. So I built a a pottery studio called The Potter's House. And we didn't have the burden of articulating religious dogma so much. Our real job was to help make sure that these Samoan and Black kids had a safe place to Mm -hmm. come. And so I was this young potter teaching kids on the South End, um, you know, how to make pots. And we we sometimes talk about Bible stories, sometimes sing music, and uh, it, it it felt like it was the real coming together of all these things that I that I that I loved or valued.
1: What was your early uh, pottery like?
0: Um, <laughs> I, I was I was really interested. Like there was a part of me that made uh, uh, functional wear, and you know I was like, and it was probably already African and Asian inspired. And then there was a part of me that was interested in, like, contemporary, uh, what do we call it, uh, expressionistic ceramic work. So heavy, big masks, round forms that would just, like, blobs. And I would just put as many glazes on it as I could and fire it, and it would mess up the kiln every time. I was interested in being both a potter and an artist.
1: And when did one kind of... Take over or uh, slip is to use a ceramic term. Sure. When did that, when did one, yeah. when did one uh, win out over the other?
0: Well, to be honest, they both are still fighting. Mm-hmm. They still contend, or they, they're both bedfellows still. Um, we, the studio, you know, I make a lot of functional wear at the studio. We just don't show it all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think functional wear is a great way to keep the studio busy and active. Mm-hmm and we hope one day to like share it with everyday people like, you know, okay, I have to, I
1: have to, Oh, you've got a little pot you know, there. Oh yeah. A little s-
0: vase. I got, yeah, they're all around me, you know oh, what wow. I mean? And, and so we have these, like, this is a probably wood fired, wood fired, uh, yellow salt glaze. Mm-hmm. It's very, very pretty nice pretty. glaze. And, and then, you know, we also make large vessels and, and maybe, uh, you know, it, it feels like a slightly more modernistic approach to, to ceramics. Uh, but I, I feel like it was the, it was the work that I was doing in clay that also had me reading a lot about the histories of makers and the history of places with mm-hmm. makers. And ultimately that, that learning is what led to my kind of contemporary practice.
1: And, and at some point, I guess, before the more, uh, Modern era of your work, right? There was a period where you, you know, you went to Cape Town and you studied there, and you also went to Japan. So, is that right? You went to Japan and, and studied pottery there, which is on a completely different level and a com- whole world of uh, of ceramics. What was that like?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm still I'm still learning how to talk about my first encounters with Japan, but what I what I realized immediately was that craft had a different hierarchical place and it was much higher in Japan. That is a person who was a great textile maker or a great woodworker or a great potter. They were an artist and there wasn't the same division between art and craft in in Japan. In order to be a great artist, it meant you knew your craft very well. Right? So, so that was different. Then it felt like the lives of everyday people were more, singularly focused. So people were not like, Oh, I'm a this and I'm a this and I'm a this. I'm a, I'm a multifaceted people are like, you know, I learned how to make paper and I make paper. Uh, My father was a woodworker. I'm a woodworker. My, my mom was a builder. I am a builder, you know? And, and, and there was a lot of pride in being more single-minded. And it's not to say that people didn't have like diverse interest and passions, and but but in terms of vocation or profession, people tended to be much more singular, and that 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 had a that had a big and profound impact on me because I was the most hyphenated person I knew.
1: And and two of your early shows, um, at least to a novice outsider, uh, in 2009 and 2010, one was called Cosmology of Yard, and the other one was Temple Exercises. That to me seemed to be like a turning point where you started to use objects whether they're collected objects or archival objects, to kind of create spaces and to create environments. Is that right? Was that kind of a, were those kind of a turning point for you?
0: Yeah, both of those were like the, the, it was was a moment in Chicago when I could no longer afford my ceramic studio. Mm. So I started working with these wooden materials uh, that were available in abundance. Mm -hmm. And Cosmology of Yard and Temple Exercises were both like this, this, foray into like using another material besides clay to kind of talk about ceramics or to to make a poetics of clay instead of just making pots all the time Mm -hmm. and 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 it was a turning point conceptually and it's also the thing that led to other opportunities uh at at museums
1: and do, when, when that happened, did you ever feel like, you know, hey, why weren't you interested in my work? Like before I started doing this, or did you, did it kind of, oh, were you kind of excited by, you know, the possibility of something totally new that you kind of stumbled onto?
0: Yeah, I definitely wasn't angry about anything because I, I had no ambition at, at the time to be a contemporary artist. I was happy being a potter. But when I saw the reception, I realized that there were all these other things that I wanted to talk about and and, and dream about um, that, that needed other materials and that these museum exhibitions that started to be offered to me like at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago and the Whitney Museum and Documenta, these were opportunities where I could quickly kind of um, unlock all these ideas that I had had but I didn't have a home for them or materials for them. And now I could use like the hands my dad gave me and the the spiritual fervor that my mom gave me. And I could I could turn that into community, I could turn that into sculpture, I I could I could make things and I could make happenings, you know.
1: Before we return to Theaster Gates, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Anne Sachs. Anne Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs. The product designers at Anne Sachs have traveled the world to source a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, each with their own unique and dramatic veining and movement to create that organic, elegant feel in interiors the company has just opened its newest slab gallery in New York's Long Island City after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. The inspirational new flagship location in Long Island City is a combination of showroom and slab gallery, showcasing the full assortment of tile and slab collections as well as in-stock vanities, lighting, and plumbing fixtures. For more information about any Ansax tile or stone or to find a showroom near you, visit www.anzacs.com. And you know we 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 talked about your your dad being a roofer, and there's a lot of materiality shows up in your work. And you there's a lot of reuse of materials, building materials. I'm wondering, um, can you this first piece that kind of included this line of thinking was that the temple exercises sort of area of, of work and and sort of um, is was that kind of the same moment? Or did that happen earlier?
0: Yeah, I think that Temple Exercises, which was the show I had in, in the kind of emerging artist space at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, it was the first time where I had like sculptural elements and activation inside the space where we had like my my newly formed band, The Black Monks of Mississippi and where there was a destination outside of the museum where I was like, okay, the museum is an interesting institution, but Shine King, which was the shoeshine place that I had grown up going to, this place is where culture lives. And so we would go to Shine King and sing uh, to the shiners. And it was, like, it was like that moment where I was starting to say, in addition to the culture that happens in museums, very important culture happens outside of museums. Let's go. Let's go be a part of it.
1: And you know that brings up a, a my next question is you once you once mentioned to NPR that the canon of the black image is sort of an ongoing subject in your work. And so I'm curious, like from then till today, what have you sort of come to learn or understand about the black image that you think maybe you didn't understand or or appreciate when you first started and doing things like shine King and, and all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great question. I, you know, one thing that's become clear is that when you're, when you're from a poor and in, in somewhat under resourced place, the thing that you might want to reveal in the black image is dignity and uh, how well we do when we do well. It's like an aspirational image, and when you look at the history of Johnson Publishing Company, uh, the Chicago Defender, you know Essence Magazine, you know you look at you know uh, circulars to pu- publications today, they all seem to focus on the aspirational. One of the things that I feel more strongly about today is that I love blackness in all its forms, which may also include. Uh, more complex economic situations or more complex social, you know, situations or, or cultural situations, but, but finding ways to, to demonstrate the beauty and dignity of people, no matter what class situation they happen to be in. So I think where I used to be really attracted to like, you know, like you, you look at, you know, Ebony and it would be like, Muhammad Ali, or someone like Nina Simone, or, you know, Isaac Hayes, or, you know, the top 10 most important millionaires. And, and, and those are important aspirational devices. But the, but the things that I'm more attracted to now is like the work of Gordon Parks, where, you know, it's like, oh, look at the way black people were living in Mississippi. And with no resources, they were still providing for their children, going to work every day, living on in, in squalor situations because of the negation of, of of our government or the lack of opportunities for to jobs, but still look at the beauty in their eyes and the, the, the luster of their you know the, the, like the, the fact that they're just making the best no matter what their situation is. And so I think I'm I'm now carrying the full, Range of the kind of cultural and economic sphere of blackness, and I'm saying it's all good mm-hmm. and
1: at some point you're 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 back in let's say two thousand and nine you're getting these museum shows, and I guess it was around that time that that the first sort of projects that would become the rebuild foundation sort of got started um, How did that happen, and why did you think like yeah, I need to go and do this outside of just sort of focusing on creating work that would be shown in a gallery or be shown uh, in some venue. How did that originally begin?
0: Well, I think I think two things happened. Um, I I recognized pretty pretty early that uh, if if the kind of institutions that I wanted to live in black space, the only way that they were going to happen is if somebody in that community built it. It wasn't gonna be something that landed from outside and there was no external money coming to make the great black institution. And that that individuals would have to come together and, and think about how best to do it. So I, I think on the rebuild started as like a kind of putting a flag in the ground and saying, This is the community that I live in and I believe something great should happen here. So it felt like kind of self determinism. But I also knew that I couldn't do it by myself and I needed the kind of legal structure. I needed I needed a platform whereby I could also invite people to help me build the ambition of this place. So it was like, all right, I'll put in what I can, but I know I can't do it all. So I'm going to build this entity so that like others who also believe in the things that I believe in, they can they can support
1: and so uh, at, at what point did the sort of archival nature of these things and the ability of these spaces to kind of create these sort of archives, um, how did that kind of come into, into
0: play? Well, initially, it, it feels like archives were almost baked into the, the birth of Rebuild because as soon as we started renovating the building, Linda Johnson Rice gave me her 26,000 volume library from Johnson Publishing. And then, you know, already the University of Chicago had given me their art history glass lantern slides. And so we we had content in advance of the building being fully renovated, right? And then as time went on and I was trying to think, what do I want the mission of this place to be? I felt like there were lots of places that were already focused on sports and places focused on Um, like the kind of party scene and, and, you know, and, and and maybe focused on like artists and giving direct support to artists like the three arts, which is a small foundation here in Chicago. I thought, Oh, maybe I could have a small exhibition space and complementary to things that I was doing at the university of Chicago. This, this exhibition space could be anchored by knowledge and knowledge within images and, and, and knowledge around sound, you know, and we would be able to say to people, hey, the everyday things from your lives have tremendous value because 150 years from now, people will want to know how we lived. And did that
1: come from a place of, of thinking of from your own research where you these archives didn't exist or you kind of had a hard time digging up certain parts of the past?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that there were definitely moments where, like, you know, when people would say, you know, well, I know where I know where your mom is from and where your grandma's from, mm-hmm. but like, where where are you from? From <laughs> right? right? Yeah. You know, whenever you get that question, yeah. I felt like, man, there there's this gap that feels like it is unaccountable, mm-hmm. you know, because of the horrors of slavery and 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 racial subjugation. But if I'm a good steward today. We will have more to hold on to into the future because we're going to build a home for it. And I think that that impulse to try to build a home today has everything to do with managing the trauma that I feel from not being able to go so far back.
1: Did you ever have your own sort of genealogy journey where you tried to trace your own uh, history where you kind of hit that roadblock?
0: Yeah, and I I think I ultimately arrived at a t-shirt where I wrote Mississippi is my Africa. That 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 I I felt like the black american experience was such a different experience um that there was something worth celebrating in this kind of transplanted germination of blackness and that that Mississippi was far enough for me.
1: Before we return to the Astor Gates, a word from our sponsor, Janus AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janus AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for 45 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Philippe Stark and Paolo Novone to Patrizia Urquiola. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. If you've been following the evolution of interior design, you'll know that the boundaries between inside and out continue to blur. One of the latest instructions from Janus AC takes this idea to another level with the Matone collection. It's comprised of 10 pieces that are fully upholstered and modular to help you create that domestic landscape of your dreams. While it may look like it belongs in a living room, Each quick-drying element is fully crafted for outdoor use and comes in two sophisticated neutral tones, a soft gray called Senda Niebla and a monochromatic beige called Senda Avena. After speaking with the Astrogates this episode, who knows how to throw a party better than anyone, I think I might plan my next outdoor space to be loungy and inviting, not just a platform for barbecue and sunbathing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. To take a relaxing nap or canoodle with others at your next outdoor party, make sure I get an invite, please. Make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. And uh, out of all the things that you have in archived uh, and and kept is uh, a collection of Frankie Knuckles records. And I'm curious, uh, how, first of all, how did that come to you? and I'm also dying to know if you ever looked through those records and found a certain gem that might be your your favorite.
0: Yeah, Dan. So I mean, as you were asking this question, I was thinking to myself, I just never get tired of talking about Hosey Knuckles. <laughs> you you know, it's it. like 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 I never get tired of certain house songs or disco songs. Um, I got a call from this guy Freddie, who I I didn't know. He had found, he had seen uh, a TV special where I was talking about another collection, Edward J. Williams' collection, and he called me and he said, "Hey, I'm the executor of Frankie Knuckles' estate, and we're trying to make decisions about what to do with his apartment and his storages. Can you come and look at these things with me?" We spent a morning together, and you know, lo and behold, he had all these albums in a in a storage uh, room. And uh, after some negotiation, uh, Freddie and I agreed that I would uh, uh, be charged with stewarding the albums and that I would I would give Freddie a a stewardship fee that I would not own them initially, that I would just be steward of them for 10 years. And with with my stewardship fee, Freddie would be able to start the Frankie Knuckles Foundation. And so he was able to get the Frankie Knuckles Foundation off the ground. I said that I would make the albums uh, public, that I would digitize the albums, and that within the 10 years, within the 10 years of having them, that he would have access to the full digital canon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're on track to deliver that. Oh, wow.
1: Them. That's, a lot of, that's a lot of digitization. That's a
0: lot of digitization.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what I
0: couldn't have imagined was that along the way, we would also create kind of a cult following around house music day parties. Uh, and, and now I think we have one of the, the hottest revolving venues for free house music in the country.
1: And, and so, you know, since the, the Rebuild Foundation, we talk about uh, house music and, and community, and it's a lot about the public. And I'm kind of wondering what you see the role of the government or the city or the state has or should have when it comes to the arts, is it not involved enough or do you think it's better off when it's generated outside of, you know, from a nonprofit or from, you know, privately?
0: Yeah, this is, this is an interesting question, Dan, because I love like when I was a younger guy, I would like go to the taste of Chicago and the, 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 you know, jazz fest and the gospel fest, like Chicago is a city of festivals, you know, and I think we do festivals pretty well. And I think a a a city that has art baked into the bones of its policies is a good city. Like you know, but I also think that there are moments when the city, in the same way that cities encourage large businesses to move here, and they incentivize those businesses by giving them tax breaks on land and property. They they give them um, uh, you know so. And regular tax breaks, breaks they give them resources, financial resources. They give them uh, access to like really smart people to help relocate those companies and those people. I feel like we've never invested in artists at that level. And it's probably also true that artists have rarely talked about, we've probably rarely talked about ourselves as a sector. So, you know, there are moments when I think, man, I would love for, you know, like, Chicago does pretty well it It makes money available to individual artists to arts organizations. The city's been extremely generous these last few years, and public art is very important. But I think that when our cities see great people doing interesting things that we should find ways to strongly encourage that and you
1: know if you could you know uh trap a bunch of politicians <laughs> in a room and give them a little lesson on what they should be doing about rehabbing underserved communities what would you what would you want to tell them
0: i would probably say that the tools that we use to give large developers the resources to to create community and neighborhood change we should invest equal if not more resources in small community organizations and emerging developers who want to do great things in their neighborhoods and we should invest in arts, in the arts and artists, because I've found that the arts do more to transform and stabilize communities than those large dollars do uh, when they when they ultimately kind of pull communities apart.
1: And do you think that in the, the world of the art world or the art market is that there's a lot of energy going towards, you know, museums as tourist, you know, as, as tourism vehicles rather than sort of community centers if that's maybe a little bit of a oversimplification.
0: Hmm. Well, to to that question I would say great museums do both. They recognize the importance of outsiders and they also say welcome to their neighbors. And I feel like that's that that conversation is one that I'm involved in a lot. But I also think that sometimes museums and our large cultural institutions like our lyric operas and 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 that they eat up the lion's share of philanthropic philanthropic dollars for the arts and culture in our cities. And so I'd, I'd love, you know, I think that the Ford Foundation is doing a really good job of kind of imagining that there are many cultural institutions that are important, not just the big ones. And how do we move this resource around enough so that great things are happening in every neighborhood in, our, in a city, not just downtown, right? Because we tend to concentrate, or at least in Chicago, we tend to concentrate the resources toward the big institutions that live downtown. But I'd love to see us do more far north, far west, far south.
1: Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Material Bank. As you know, I've been a design journalist for 20 years. And in that time, I visited dozens of designer studios. Sure, it's fun seeing where the architects work and sketch, But my favorite part of the tour is always the material library. And as any designer knows, finding, sourcing, and keeping track of samples is a major undertaking and a major headache. But there's no discipline of design without a keen knowledge and access to great and innovative materials. That's where Material Bank comes in. As the fastest and most sustainable platform to search, sample, and specify materials, it's become an indispensable tool. On Material Bank, you can search more than 500 brands in seconds, connect with reps, get vital specs in an instant, and most importantly, get those samples in hand overnight. It's the most sustainable way of pulling samples from around the world, and everything comes in one box. And it's more than just a place to browse. It's a connective network that's powering the design world to create amazing things. The conversation about materiality is so key today, even in the art world, as you'll hear from our guest, Astro Gates, with his use of clay, archival collections of magazines, or even simple wood panels to create site-specific installations. With a platform like Material Bank, you never know what kind of exhibition you might create. It's free for designers to join, so go online to become a member today at materialbank.com.
0: And,
1: uh... A recent show you had at Whitechapel, um, which was a part of a residency at the VNA, and uh, in London called The Clay Sermon, and it kind of combines pottery and spirituality. And you've mentioned your, your sort of spiritual journey. I'm kind of wondering how you, it might be a weird word, but how do you identify now in spiritual terms uh, as a
0: person? Hmm. That's a, it, yeah, another another good and complicated question. <laughs> I think... Thank you. I, I think in my heart, Dan, I have a, I am a believer. Like I'm a, like I want to believe, I want to, I, I feel like I want to believe, I want to be an optimist. I want to, I want to believe in other people. I want to see interesting things happen. In terms of faith, I feel like my faith is a little bit of an amalgam now from being raised in a and not just a Christian household, but like a black Baptist, black Southern Baptist, missionary Baptist. It, it's a very particular um, religious dominant, which is which is it couldn't be any more different from the Catholic Church or, uh, you know, the Pentecostal experience or like you know, a black Baptist experiences like the religion of mississippi you no know? and and with it there there's the music and there's the the kind of culture of that there's but there's also like a very sophisticated use of improv improvisational language there's its adjacency to slavery and so the music is emerges out of that and so so i think that if you combine the Kind of missionary Baptist black religious experience with uh, knowledge of Buddhism and interest in Shintoism and interest in pan pan pantheisms of of uh, of um, Asia and and the continent. I feel like what what's happened is that it's synthesized into a person that understands that faith is something that's deeply personal. And that faith is a driver more than it is a goal or a place. And that I, I feel like by allowing my faith to, to drive me, I've made decisions that are, that are ambitious and loving decisions that have had significant consequence on the South Side of Chicago. Like faith, faith should be something that evidences my belief. And, and the South Side is the evidence of my belief.
1: And and you you sort of brought that belief to London with the Serpentine Pavilion, which was called Black Chapel, um, which I think you was kind of considered a first architectural work or an architectural adjacent work because, um, I- in that sense, that it was a freestanding structure built from scratch. And um, can you explain what that structure was and 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 the space that you created for performances inside and how that. Just sort of explain it to someone who's not, not seen it.
0: Well, I would say that, that Black Chapel actually took its cues from my project at the Walker Art Center, which was a, a permanent sculpture made from my bricks. And it was a kind of outdoor situation. And um, but But Black Chapel was my attempt at creating a kind of sacred altar within this very large park, Kensington Gardens. And a space of convening where the music that I make, the music of my people, w- where those things could be uh, resonant in a in a big way, and um, and the pavilion, you know, I was maybe maybe the first non-architect, um, besides someone like Oliver Eliasson, I was kind of the first artist to take on this challenge, and with the support of David Ajay, I feel like I was able to realize. Maybe the pavilion of my little dreams, you know, which was like it it had services inside. Like there was a little, you know, you could get a a, a coffee and a tea. But but really it was it was dominantly a sacred place for listening and being quiet and being with others. And um, I think it's probably going to be the first of many, many future projects,
1: I hope. And uh. Congratulations on the soon to come 2023 um, Isamu Noguchi Award uh, in advance, um, which will happen this fall. And I'm just curious, like, what you when you think about Noguchi and his life and his work, um, you know, obviously, like on a very surface level, you can see you can see parallels. Um, You know, what do you think about his work and how has he sort of inspired you?
0: You know, it's it's really special to to be considered a a person that gets to live in his tradition because he, he was of Japanese descent, but then like spent time later in his life in his adult years, like me going to Japan, getting, getting to know himself by being present and kind of having to accept his Americanness as he went there, even though he was of Japanese descent as well. So that felt very familiar. I think that the the ways in which philosophy govern what one makes, I feel like we have that in common. And it was actually Martin Puryear who was talking about Noguchi once and said, you know, we all have to go through Brancusi. And so I think that, that the part of me that has like a, a sculptural impulse toward minimalism or naturalism that I, I think. You know, which is maybe in some ways connected to modernism. I feel like Noguchi was able to epitomize this combination of Eastern values meeting Western modernism, meeting someone's personal identity to try to connect with materials. He's, he was just a good, good dude. He didn't separate like big parks from individual object sculpture, from furniture or appliances or lights like he he ran the gamut and i think as i grow older and i gain confidence i feel like i also want to traverse those varying ways so uh i feel more and more like our lives are going to be intertwined as i get older
1: that's a good idea maybe especially if there's a museum and with your name on it in the future uh which i think (laughs) is pretty much assured um as an educator, I mean, do you still you still teach it at the University of Chicago, correct? I do. I do. OK. And you also are an advisor and and, uh, you know, I've listened to some interviews that you've given about um, arts and the education. And there's a lot of when I talk to different uh, artists and designers and and people that, you know, uh, some studied in school, some didn't. or and it's changed so much. And there's such talk about the professionalization of creativity. Uh, and art and design and and all those kind of thing. Um, I'm just curious, like, what your impression is of arts education today, higher arts education today. Um, another probably very complicated question. Um, but um, do you think that this? Do you do you agree, or do you think that that the world of art has become too professionalized, to I don't know, become too much of a business? And therefore, the universities kind of have to prepare you to be in that industry.
0: It's interesting because, you know, I I just finished teaching this last quarter a couple months ago. And um, in my class, there were people who obviously wanted to be they they wanted they want to turn at the art market and they want to be art stars. Right. And let's say out of a cohort of like 14 people, two or three want to be famous. Other people enter art because, like, it's what they did as a child. It's, it's nice and complementary to other things that they're interested in, like, you know, biomedical things or computer science things or physics. And, and what I'm finding is that we're, we, we are in a moment where true hyphenation is happening, where, you know, there are students, and, and this may have always been the case, Dan, that there were students who were great at physics or great at, 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 in the sciences, but they were also extremely adept at, um, piano or uh, they were virtuosic in a, in an instrument or mathematics and, and music or, um, you know, the sciences and certain kinds of visual graphing in the arts. So I feel like I'm in a position where I can train people to feel less, less schizophrenic about their dualities. And, in that from a younger age, they can, they can, they can feel as if, you know, it's not that I have to be a, a neuroscientist by day and a hobby artist by night. But in a way, the arts is fueling my interest in neurosciences and it's adding value to the way that I think about the sciences and, and vice versa. That because I have this seemingly linear brain around math, it means that I approach uh, light and color with a different kind of like Right brain intelligence, and I I love when when students are given a problem that they that needs both sides of their brain, right? But is it true that there are, you know, uh, galleries that are identifying people in high school and ushering them through undergrad? It's almost like the like a sports team or something, where you know if you're an undergrad at Yale or an undergrad at Columbia or NYU. There's already, like, top picks or some shit. And it's it's a little bit absurd, you know. But I think that at some point, maybe um, those values will get challenged more and more. And I think for my other 11 students who are not interested in being, you know, uh, uh, star artists, whatever they're called, that that they are trying to deepen enriched you know enrich their lives they're trying to deepen and, and enliven their lives and i want to help them do that too so even if you're not interested uh in the market part of it you're just interested in the catharsis or you're interested in the self-expression that i i wanna i want to help produce more and more of those artists who are just saying i just want to make better i want to just do better be better in the world you know uh in terms
1: of doing better in the world uh you know so much of your career is centered on the well-being of other people, and the creativity of others, um, even in teaching, of course, as we just kind of went into, and it's all super admirable. Uh, but when I when I'm what I'm wondering about is, do you ever worry that you you're giving yourself in your career like such a high goal where where true progress can seem almost kind of like. Uh, I don't want to say a fool, like kind of like a fool's errand. Are you shouting into a void? Do you, do you do you feel like, you know, there are other artists that can be like super famous, get a big show, you know, have money and then they're happy. They're famous. It's over. But because of your work is so much about the happiness and fulfillment of others, is that a goal that can never truly be achieved?
0: I don't know if I think about it just like that, Dan. Actually, I hope not. (laughs) Maybe I have a little bit of like success empathy or survivor's empathy. I feel like people help me do better. I want to help people do better. And it doesn't feel like an overwhelming burden most days. It feels like a reasonable part of living a full artistic life is that like if you're a professor, your students are going to call and ask you for recommendations. It's part of the thing. If you're if you're with a gallery, at some point the gallery is going to ask you to donate things to an auction. It's part of the thing, so maybe it's just like an extension being generous, like through rebuild or or finding ways to support other artists. Maybe that's just like an extension of the practice. There may come a time when I want my practice to be more heavily laden on the side of making art than giving service. But those things haven't felt like I would only want to give service or I would only want to make art. I like the balance, you know. I mean, as I I get a little achy, you know, I think, okay, there's only so much I can do in a day. And maybe it's a little bit less than I could do when I was 30, but I feel like the ground that we've laid—it it's ground that I'm well, that I'm very proud of, and I and I feel like um we've been able to lay a foundation not when I was 80, but when I was 25, and that and that I don't want to be on my deathbed and saying I wish I had done more for other artists. So I just got started earlier because I saw great artists like Warhol. And Joan Joan Mitchell and Rauschenberg, you know, I'm even thinking about like artists who are still living, who do great things that may not want to be named, you know, or to, to see what's happening as a result of the Gordon Parks Foundation. And to, you know, even to think about the legacies of John and Eunice Johnson, I think, wow, what if I started giving now? What if I, what if I started giving when I didn't have anything to give? What if it was just like a spirit of, openness and generosity. And I just live with that openness and generosity all my life. So, so that there's not a goal. I don't have a goal of like, I want to be able to contribute $26 million, $50 billion. It's like, I want to live a life that's full. And if I can help bring other artists along or show them an example or let them steal ideas from me or give them ideas that's for their work and it's not for me, you know, uh, that, that those things really, they feel like a pleasure.
1: And, you know, how is your uh, your team set up today? Because you have all of these, you know, you're always adding these archives. I felt like you must have a team of people scouring the country looking for these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. You know, it's yeah, it's interesting. Like we're we're on payroll. There's probably 13 full time people. So that's a that's a small team. We're down from like 65 people when I was managing a university crew and, a, you know, a real estate team and uh, my studio and I think between the 13 of us I feel like we get a lot done and then we have a lot of friends and allies who help us with the the heavy lifting again in a business world you guys would call that outsourcing or something but <laughs> it just got to a point where the project was so big that we thought let's just have our core team and then let's get as much help from the outside as we can and and that's worked out pretty well. And what's next
1: for you? I heard that you're going back to Japan with a project. And uh, how's that going?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, um, this this town that I studied in, which is called Tokonami, it's in in central Japan. Um, this town, there was a, 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 a sewer pipe manufacturing company that went out of business. The family was called Maruri. Maruri and um i'm going back there to reactivate that ceramic uh pipe factory into uh like a ceramics manufacturing company for tableware uh small design things and i think i'm going to build my brand dorchester industries i'm going to build this little brand that's like the the handmade wares that lives adjacent to my studio practice oh wow that's amazing
1: and i also hear that I'm you're you're working on a Former school in Chicago to become an arts incubator. That's I think forty thousand square feet or something quite large.
0: Yep, it's called the St. Lawrence kind of arts incubator, and uh, our hope is that we'll be able to, you know, the lessons that I've learned bumping my head for the last thirty years, I can share some of those lessons with younger artists who seem already out of out the gate way more sophisticated than I'll ever be, Uh, and so I'm going to just give what I can and hope that it helps but we'll at least have a space in Chicago where artists can work Um, many of them will be able to work at no cost and uh, we hope to amplify the careers of artists and designers
1: and if if you had to uh, describe your aspirations as an artist in in three words I'm wondering what those three words would be Uh,
0: do it well
1: Thank you to the Astor Gates and to Melissa Ulster and Andre Formanovich for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow the Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.